This is the current federal tax developments for the week of February the 19th, 2024. Current federal tax developments are brought to you by Kaplan Financial Education and by your state society of CP. Dollars, and today we are again coming from Phoenix. We're going to talk about some updates and some things that have happened in the past week in taxes. We're going to start out looking at the fact that insurers updated their advice on beneficial ownership information reporting this week. We had updates from both AON, the AICPA provider, and from Cameco, which a lot of state societies uh, you know, have as their provider that they would you know that you get as a member access to, special access to, whatever, from that standpoint. And both of them did it in a way that is more positive towards CPAs performing these engagements than it's been in the past. Not necessarily that it's saying, yeah, great, wonderful thing to do. There are cautions, but certainly it's not as negative as some people had gotten word from earlier in the year, and certainly as some of their posts earlier in the year had been on this issue. We're also going to find that uh, we'll talk about a case where a, you know, essentially the salt cap uh, vote in the Congress ended up dying on a procedural vote. So we'll talk about that and how that bill appears to be dead for this session. Obviously, anything can come back. Obviously, anything can end up in another bill. Right now, doesn't look like that's going to work. We also find that a jury found the taxpayer did not willfully fail to file FBAR reports. And I think this case is mainly interesting from the standpoint of, well, what the taxpayer did that got the IRS's attention, which obviously is one of those things where, you know, you have to consider that side of it. But the flip side of it was also what the, you know, the fact that the jury found the taxpayer did not willfully fail to file the report. And that goes more to maybe the uh, potential good news, shall we say, of access to a jury in a district court trial, uh, the issue coming as to whether you want a jury or a judge. That's more of a legal concept than it is an accounting concept, but certainly this is a case where, unlike cases the taxpayers have seemed to cons consistently have lost, where we had a judge apply, be the trier of fact and the trier and the basically, and rule on matters of law, uh, this is a little more interesting how this ends up working. We're also going to talk about reports this week that the IRS has been sending. Uh, well, actually, first, not reports. This is an IRS memorandum that takes position that third party payers are liable along with the common law employer for any employee retention credit refund repayment. This is where the third party payer is using their own ID number for purposes of filing. So we'll talk a little bit about that. And uh, basically, the IRS position on the due diligence that those third-party payers should have been taking with regard to these claims. We're also going to take a look at the IRS sending out the CP-271, soft letters to those with open employee retention tax credit refund claims. Now, these letters have been reported, and a copy of such a letter was posted onto the platform formerly known as Twitter, now known as X. Um, but so far, doing a web search, we're not finding anything at the IRS announcing these CP-271 letters. We'll talk about what they are, what they discuss, and why the IRS is sending them. We'll also discuss a case of an S-corporation that had to get a private letter ruling because nine separate trusts that were basically spawned when a shareholder died, uh, every one of them failed to make a required election for those trusts to hold the shares once the shares moved out of uh, what had been a revocable trust that had been treated as an estate after the person died. We have eight 
failed elections or, or basically non-existent elections or a qualified subchapter S trust. That's where the beneficiary failed to make the election and one for electing small business trust. Interesting case because those trusts weren't written to qualify for those statuses by, you know, by accident. So the question becomes, why did nobody know we needed to do this? And that's, and this is not a standalone case. I haven't seen one with nine trusts that managed to do this recently, but certainly we've seen other cases where one or two trusts have failed to make such elections. And we also have a case where a taxpayer unsuccessfully argued that she only should have to pay taxes on social security benefits she actually received. And while that might seem, yeah, you just have to pay on what you get, right? We'll talk about why that's not true in her case with disability benefits and workers' compensation claims. So we'll talk about that odd part of the code. So let's begin talking about the information we now have from insurers regarding the foreign bank account reporting, or I should say, we're not FBAR, but it should be FinCEN, uh, BOI engagements. So the beneficial ownership information engagements. Now, the first one we're going to reference here is an article that appeared on the New Jersey Society CPA's website, but has a link to a two-page letter from Cameco. And the article is entitled, Cameco Provides Clarification on BOI Coverage. It was published to the New Jersey Society website on February 12th of 2024. Now, what I find interesting about this is right now I try to search using a couple techniques to see if I could, you know, if Google would find it on Cameco's site and give us a link. And I don't find it. You know, I don't find they've actually made it available to the public or they're using a robots.txt to stop anybody from looking, you know, Google, et cetera, from looking in there, which doesn't seem to make sense for Cameco to do if it's public, but okay, whatever is there. But we do have this one. So we'll talk a little bit about this coverage, what the letter says and how it goes. As I noted, it's two pages of guidance issued by Cameco on the BOI engagements. It was provided to the New Jersey Society of CPAs and they have now published it on their website. We're going to assume it was made available to other state CPA societies, at least those have a relationship with Cameco. So I wouldn't be surprised that other state societies may also have a link to this. So we'll see what's there. Now, an interesting statement found in the guidance, and this will, from what some people have told me, right? Now, it could be people have misheard what they were told. It could have been, you know, Cameco was being, uh, shall we say, purposefully vague and people would hear what they want to hear. It's tough to know. But according to this, now this interesting statement, Cameco intends that coverage will respond to typical CTA claim we anticipate receiving, particularly if at the time the services are rendered, both the state in which the firm and client reside have not deemed the providing CTA-related services to be unauthorized practice of law. Now, as lots of people have told me, Cameco, you know, they told me that Cameco had told them, well, no state has ruled it's not the unauthorized practice of law. This seems to, though, turn that on its head, stating that they anticipate providing coverage until such time as a state, either the one the CPA is in or the one the client resides in, has ruled this is the unauthorized practice of law. At that point, especially if it's a criminal prosecution issues, um, you know, we have a different problem because as Cameco notes, insurance is not allowed to provide liability coverage for criminal acts. That's considered against public policy. Now, most but not all states have a criminal statute for unauthorized practice of law. It is a misdemeanor of some sort in many states. Uh, 
For instance, however, like Arizona repealed their criminal UPL statute back in the 80s. So Arizona does not have a criminal statute. We're not quite sure what the Arizona Supreme Court can do. Obviously, in dicta, they think they can do things, but so far there's little evidence they've actually tried uh, any serious heavy duty other than, no, you can't file petitions in court type of regulation if you're not an attorney. Uh, in terms of regulating people who have not previously been licensed by the bar, right? So if they kick them out, they claim that they have a right to discipline. And that was a decision back in 2001, if I recall, uh, where the Arizona Supreme Court took that position. They could discipline somebody who had lost their license uh, and who then went out and started continuing to do what the Supreme Court just felt was a practice of law. But they haven't ever, as far as I could tell, at least not any case that went to court that I found, uh, actually been disciplining people who were not licensed. In fact, there is a concurring opinion in the case that started all of this at the Arizona Supreme Court that while concurring with the actions against the former attorney, effectively lectured the Supreme Court. They had no business talking about non-attorneys at this point because that was not before them. And, you know, the justification for going after former attorneys was pretty clear and pretty strong, according to this justice. But, you know, the other issue didn't say it didn't work and their logic wasn't correct. But his theory was just simply their logic wasn't necessary in this case. And the court shouldn't be commenting on situations that are irrelevant to the decision. So we don't know where they stand that way. But it is true that your insurance generally for public policy purposes, it wouldn't be a good idea for, for you to be able to insure against criminal activities. You know, if, if you rob a bank, they, they, they will help pay your family while you're in prison. That would be a bad thing. But I think we can understand why criminal statutes are not there. So they won't cover criminal issues. And that's available. Um, the other neat thing about this is, notably, it indicates, though it doesn't provide a link to them, but it does indicate that for people who are chemical customers, they have draft engagement and management representation letters. What I found really interesting was they indicate two separate engagement letters, one for doing an initial report and one for doing CTA consulting, which is an interesting aside. Uh, we'll talk about next up Aon's approach. Uh, but that suggests both not just simply filling in the report, but also consulting, which seems to indicate helping a client decide whether or not their entity is exempt. And my position has always been that, yeah, somewhere in that engagement, I think we get to, at the very least, a question of a CPA's competence. You know, do you have adequate technical competence to actually make these calls as things get more complicated? Because I've been through the rules, you know, I've been reading them since they came out in 2022. And I've been doing a lot of, you know, lectures and other things over the years. And there are definitely going to be cases where it's not clear if somebody is either has effectively a 25% ownership or has effectively substantial control of the entity. There are going to be fuzzy areas there. And so I'm a little concerned, especially let's say if there are multiple trusts that own interest in this entity and those trusts themselves are a bit complicated. So trying to figure out who effectively has substantial control could become very, very interesting. And that's especially going to be doubly true if you have an entity where somebody is trying to avoid listing somebody. By the way, that's the sort of thing that I really would feel like maybe you as a CPA 
or an EA, that's where you start getting like really iffy about, no, I don't know that you should be counseling people on how to avoid this reporting because that's clearly not a tax issue anymore or anything closely related to tax. The other document, which appeared uh, essentially like a day later, at least per the date on the engagement letter, uh, where I got this date was, I didn't see any date on the website when it was referred to me, but I, I did see a date on the engagement letter when I went into Word and look at document properties when it was created. So, and that date was February 13th. So we're going to assume that the engagement letter needed to be there. So February 13th is what I'll use as a date here. This is an article on the AON, AON and AICPA website, cpai.com is where it hides, entitled Risk Management and the Corporate Transparency Act, including sample engagement letters. Right, very, very much detailed there, which by the way, the big deal with this one is of course, unlike the Cameco that says, if you are a customer or a client, we have engagement letters. This one is one that's being published in the open. Now it is more limited, we'll talk about it, but it does have a detailed page discussing various risk management issues and as noted, a sample engagement letter. Now it does discuss a number of issues that should be addressed for client acceptance. And you know, number of these are good. One of them that's really, and it talks about things like complex, messy structures, other things, you know, a lot of side agreements, you know, in essence, that's the sort of thing where you've got to make your call about whether or not you actually have the competence to decide what, what would, you know, a federal court decide looking at these rules, or maybe what would a state court decide as to who could do what, and then what would the federal court interpret the state court would do? Because those are kind of the calls that would be made. But a couple of key things that notes that I think are important for client acceptance is, um, they strongly suggest that if you have a client that regularly gets things in at the last minute, at the deadline, or is difficult to obtain data from, that's probably not a good client to be doing this reporting for. Again, the problem there is gonna be with the short deadlines, with the, the short time period for deadlines, with the issues involved, with them having to take responsibility for reporting these events back, um, that could be litigation waiting to happen. So those are probably dangerous clients. You don't want somebody that waits till the last day because if anything goes wrong in the last day, then suddenly you're responsible for them being exposed to potentially a $591 per day penalty for however long it takes to get this thing actually properly filed. Secondly, which is really interesting concept, but I also think is important. They even suggest you might want to consider doing criminal background checks on at least some of the clients. Because as they noted, if in fact it turns out that the clients are providing is a criminal offense to provide false information, you know, intentionally provide false information regarding FBAR or various, you know, or fail to provide relevant information, not FBAR, but the BOI. And the problem they note is the CPA could easily get tied up with charges of aiding and abetting, even if not directly, you know, being involved with filing false data or, you know, providing the data. The client may have done that, but you are one of the people assisting in that and the CPA could get all tied up. And as I note, that's going to be especially true. And I think that is Aon's concern. If it turns out that you weren't aware the client was doing a few things that were questionably legal, they did have, let's say, a hidden silent partner that they never told you about, 
all those bad things. And obviously, if they're doing illegal things and they're involved in smuggling various substances into the country or doing other things that are highly illegal, and regardless of whether you knew about it or not, you know, you're still potentially going to get yanked in. So doing criminal background checks and discovering if people in the company or people with the entity, you know, the clients in question have some problems in their background. Yeah, could be useful. Interesting issue they discussed. They also talk about required documentation, have a discussion there. Clearly, one of the key things here is going to be client representations, especially if you're not providing, you know, what Cameco talked about, which was the consulting on CTA. You know, the client is responsible for identifying uh, 25% or greater owners, as well as being responsible for identifying those with substantial control. Um, make sure that you get the client's representations in writing about who falls under each category. Uh, you know, if you're not going to go out and be doing, you know, and doing your own work, which you probably aren't, uh, their representations are going to be a key aspect of this. You know, what did they represent? And even if you're doing the consulting, what they represent is going to be key to tie down. You know, did they give you the proper facts? Did they, you know, how, how open were they? Because I guarantee you, if it gets to litigation, they're going to swear they told you all kinds of things, right? And they can't believe that. So documentation, including client rep letters, are probably not a bad idea. Remember, Camico had a rep letter in their aspects that they would send to a client, that they would send to their customers. Uh, there is a sample engagement letter. Uh, they do recommend that you uh, use it as a starting point with the firm's counsel. Now, as I said, it's interesting because for a long time, there were concerns from the AI CPA and from various other CPAs I've heard from, including many who have Cameco and have been reaching out to them, that they were of the impression, some of them just flat out, it was always going to be the underwrite's practice of law. In fact, claimed they'd been told that by the insurance company. Uh, and others, you know, just feeling like, nope, there was no way, you know, this is CPA shouldn't be doing this, etc. So how did we get to the point this month where suddenly we now have two major insurers? And I wouldn't be surprised if it turns out these are the two largest insurers of CPAs in this area who have now both come to conclusion and are publishing sample engagement letters. How do you explain that? Why wasn't why, why did they wait till now instead of a year ago uh, having published information like this? Well, I think there are a number of reasons as to why we're doing it, why they now accept. Now, be aware, the advice still cautions about issues that can arise, but no longer do we see phrases like, which is the exact phrase I know that Cameco loss prevention had told a couple of CPAs, well, no state has ruled this is not UPL. Now, I always thought that was an odd statement because as far as I could tell, doing research on UPL issues and looking into it, you know, over various things, I didn't find that most states have ever said exactly what anything was in UPL. The only time we discover what they think UPL is, is when they litigate, right? When there's actually a case in front of somebody and we discover what the state determined in a court case was the unauthorized practice of law. Um, so there's very, very few things, including many things CPAs do. That because, you know, the world doesn't nicely divide perfectly into this is wholly covered by Title 26 United States Code. In many cases, Title 26 United States Code, things on Internal Revenue Code depend upon, like, how you properly interpret property law under state law. 
you know, who's the owner of this income? You know, who's the owner of this entity? And so those are always involved in some way, shape, or form. And we don't have anything that tells us really directly exactly at what point related to a tax return do we cross over in those areas to the unauthorized practice of law by giving clients advice on, you know, well, you know, you want to report a married filing separate return. You live in a community property state. Well, you know, this income here is, you know, I'm going to suggest this is community and we're going to suggest that this part isn't. And as anybody that knows, as any attorney that knows uh, property law and community property states, that determination in many cases is not going to be real simple, especially if somebody's trying to maintain property or income as separate property. Uh, it can get very messy to determine what's there. And of course, divorces go wild on those things too. So, you know, we never really had a clear indication of at what point you're crossing a line. Obviously, though, to prepare a you know, married filing separate return in a community property state, somebody's got to make that call. So we're there. So I guess the question quickly becomes, you know, why in the world were the states this iffy? Well, I think a lot of things happen. First thing is, I think the natural reaction of an insurance company when faced with some potential expansion of, you know, this brand new thing that could give rise to claims is you don't just walk out right away and say, oh yeah, do anything you want there, we'll cover you. You know, that's, and until they have better understanding of it, you know, you're not going to make that statement. Number two, it was possible, and I think this is where the UPL concerns came up. It might be possible that in at least some state, you know, maybe the law firms in the state all want to, you know, get this work, grab this work, and so the attorneys start pestering loudly for this to be treated as unauthorized practice of law in the state. They start raising those things. They start going after those things. Now, for the most part, I've not seen that. I've seen, I've talked to a lot of attorneys who don't really, you know, want to do anything with this. I've talked to a couple. I know of one who literally does and is forming a group, you know, inside his firm to essentially process these and handle them for people who may not want to deal with them. So, you know, you want to send to somebody like that, he can do that. But I haven't gotten the feeling here in Arizona or in other states I've talked to people that the attorneys are all saying, hey, this is something absolutely CPA shouldn't be involved in this at all. You know, they're stealing from us by doing this work. Same thing for EAs. They're stealing from us by doing this work. So we haven't seen that movement. In fact, most states haven't really said anything. That's probably the other thing that's not terribly surprising. Most states have been quiet on this. Therefore, as I said, it's not become a big issue. We've not seen state Supreme Courts or committees that advise those, you know, the, the Supreme Court and the states, let's say, on these issues, really get heavy into what's UPL here. And finally, as mentioned, the November FAQ that was put out by FinCEN specifically told, you know, covered companies that need assistance that, you know, they're, they're kind of saying they're directing them to accountants along with attorneys that they'll provide assistance in getting your form filled out. And I think given that, that probably also convinced them that, look, FinCEN fairly views this as something accountants would be helping with. Uh, that's going to make it tougher for the states to carry an unauthorized practice of law. It's not quite cir the Circular 230 issue where that's a regulation. But 
the whole issue that the federal courts could decide again that federal agencies can determine who can practice before them could also come into play the same way it did with CERC 230. That's also part of this. Now, the big thing to remember is there are still risks involved. Okay? This is not a total green light. Cameco and Aon both advise you of risks that are involved. Okay? The biggest one, I think, though, practically, is you take on an engagement that you don't have adequate, tech, adequate technical competence to make the call about what the legal results and what the impact is legally of these various items. And you know what? Eventually that comes back to haunt the client. You know, it could come back to haunt them in a, you know, in a basically a BOI report where FinCEN is trying to collect the 591 per day. But it could come up in another context where, let's say, the BOI information came into play. It was discovered and went through discovery, whatever. Um, and so it's like, well, look, according to them, this person can run this company, has, you know, has substantial control. Therefore, you know, we'll talk about all those things that could or couldn't have happened. That, that could create some interesting problems. So I do think you have to consider, do you have adequate technical competence to advise the client in, if they're asking me to determine, does, is this person somebody who has substantial control or has a more than 25% interest? And the answer is not going to be simple. You know, if you're asking me if somebody has substantial control and they're the CEO of the corporation, president of the corporation, bingo. That's the rules. Very, very clear there. You know, they have that. If they are a manager of the LLC and they effectively have all, you know, they effectively do what a president does. Yeah, that seems pretty clear. If they're the only owner of a single member LLC, pretty clear they have more than 25% ownership interest. They have to be listed. But when you get into kind of oddball side arrangements, are there any other agreements? Are other things happening? That's when it could get much messier. And like I said, I think especially with complex things where you don't have ownership by an individual directly, but you have ownership by an entity. And now we're trying to figure out by looking through that entity who the people are that could exercise control. Because remember, it always comes down to people not entities. Entities are never going to be listed as beneficial owners. It's always going to be a person. We need to get to people. And that's where things like trust and maybe complex partnerships with multiple ownership interests, it can get very difficult to figure out, trying to look through that entity to figure out, you know, who are the people that would exercise influence that will come from the entity having that level of ownership. And UPL does remain a theoretical issue. The fact that they'll, in essence, and that means it could become a problem. You need to keep aware of, you know, is there any movement in your state or the states of your clients to, you know, take on this as unauthorized practice of law? Because the fact no state, you know, it could happen. We could suddenly have next year, you know, let, let's say a month from now, we could just have an announcement, you know, from a, you know, random state, let's say Kansas. That in Kansas, you know, any CPA providing, you know, any sort of advice about whether somebody actually owns a share of stock or is actually the effective owner of X of this X percent interest of the LLC for this purpose, that would be the practice of law. Those rulings could come down. So, you know, it's going to have to keep up with technical developments, right? That's going to be key in that realm. 
And also, though, please remember, there is still a risk, which Aon has been pushing from early on, in not advising a client about this at all. Because, and now especially with this, especially with what, you know, the, the November FAQ from FinCEN said, there's a real good chance that we now have, you know, the expectation that you'll be providing advice. Okay, next up, that took a while to talk about. Let's talk about the uh, a bill, the death of HR 7160, the apparent death of the Salt Marriage Penalty Elimination Act. It failed to pass procedural vote on February 15, 2024. Now, what happened is there's a procedural vote for the bill to move to the floor for a vote. Now, it was paired with a separate measure denouncing Biden's energy policy. Now, that's an interesting pairing and almost seems to be a poison pill. Conceptually, it is, you know the Democrats are going to be forced to vote against bringing a bill denouncing Biden's energy policies to the floor of the House. Um, so did you put it on there so that you wouldn't have to record votes against this by members of your party? You know, that the members of the party could vote in favor of it for the most part, and you'll be able to then say, we'll see it, just the Democrats wouldn't let us bring us to the floor. That's very possible. As I said, it's a little interesting that it came to the floor not by itself, but with this pairing, you know, it's kind of, it's, you know, it's like I said, it's a poison pill, you know, doing that sort of thing, you know, you know, it, it would be like pairing a bill, similar thing if the Democrats were in control and it was this tight, pairing it with a bill, let's say to do something, you know, the Republicans would oppose, like, you know, imposing restrictions on what states could do, you know, let's say a push the Democrats have made in a very controversial area of abortion. If the Democrats said, hey, we're going to we're going to put it to the floor along with a bill to essentially reinstate Roe, Roe v. Wade on the, you know, from the federal level and bar the states. Well, you know, every Republican is going to vote, vote against it. It's a given. So kind of the same thing here. It was a procedural vote. 18 Republicans and all Democrats vote against the rule. Uh, the 18 Republicans are from, you know, generally very red states. And so, you know, very red and low tax states, they don't see a risk in doing it. They're against this being done, but it allowed all the other Republicans to vote in favor of it. So they can go back home and tell their constituents, hey, we tried to fix this, right? That, that's kind of the background. Um, as I said, it seemed to have converted to something used solely for political posturing. So that's not unusual in election year. Expect these things to happen. Expect the Democrats to pull similar things. We'll do it for posturing. That's how you work these games, right? And while you never can say never, this looks final. And I say it looks final because we don't hear any of the Republicans that were in the coalition that were trying to push for this vote. We don't see any of them claiming that leadership played foul or did something of that sort. We don't see anybody suggesting that they try to push it to the floor on its own. Uh, yeah, I think it's dead, dead. It could always resurface in another bill, but I don't see it likely. You know, I, I thought it was questionable to pass to begin with. It's now questionable now, right? Basically, I think it's done. Next up, we have the case here of United States versus Gaynor, U.S. District Court of the Middle, of the Middle District of Florida. This was case number 21-CV-0032. This was a jury verdict, so there's no opinion to read. Juries don't tell us why they do something. They just do it. 
This one came down on Valentine's Day. Now, Ms. Gaynor is an heir to the Texaco fortune, if I recall right. That's her background. Now, turns out she had a bunch of money in Swiss bank accounts. And that over the times in question, it varied from $30.9 million to $33 million in these Swiss accounts. She had not filed FBAR reports on these accounts, and she had not basically reported the income from them. Now, as you're aware, the IRS had a way that you could come in from the cold. But what she did, and there's a lot of discussions back and forth, instead of going through those IRS procedures, which had, you know, you paid a certain cap penalty, you did certain other things, and then we treated you as good, uh, she instead did what's called a quiet disclosure. What she went back through, she amended and filed revised FBAR reports reporting these accounts for the years in question. She also went back and picked up, you know, $6.6 million in foreign interest, dividends, and capital gains over those years, which resulted in $1 million of taxes that she paid. Okay. Now, quiet disclosure means you just send this through the IRS systems, you send it through FBAR, send it through, you know, FinCEN, and you know, kind of just, you know, we just get it done. It's been corrected. But they didn't go through the IRS program. Now, because of that, the IRS was not happy, right? And so the IRS attempted to assess her $21 million in FBAR penalties, the 50% willful penalty, right? On the accounts for the years in question, various other mechanical ways to be done. So we're looking at $20 million that they said she owed. In this case, what happened was the taxpayer took this case to the, to the court, but she asked for a jury trial. Now, this gets to what juries rule on versus what judges rule on in a case where there's a jury trial. In general, juries rule on questions of fact. And one of those questions of fact in the case of a willfully filed, you know, willfully, you know, omitted or you know, bad FBAR, so she willfully violated FBAR, is whether or not there is sufficient evidence that she acted willfully. And this would be a civil case or a preponderance of evidence. And that's something that the jury decides. You know, was there, you know, did, was there enough going on where it appears that she willfully violated these rules? The judge will describe to the jury what is under the law is, you know, is, is, has to be shown to show willfulness. What would indicate willfulness? And then the jury applies the facts before them to that law. Now, before it goes to jury, the judge does have some chances to take care of this, right? I'm not an attorney, so I'm going to give you a vague description. Uh, attorneys can clean this up. Any comments, put them in. But basically, you know, if the judge felt that the facts only could lead to one conclusion, there might be a directed verdict where simply the jury was ordered to go in and come back and say, hey, she acted willfully. Or if the judge felt after they returned their verdict that their verdict was at odds with the facts, you know, couldn't be justified under the facts, then the judge could set it aside at that point. But generally, they don't do those two very often unless the case is just overwhelmingly, you know, in essence, it's clear what would go on. But we've had an awful lot of cases where judges have found willful conduct uh, for things where it just appeared like the client didn't read the tax return that their CPA gave them is what we have the evidence is the IRS is going on Schedule B. The question's at the bottom. 
I certainly could see a jury concluding, even if they had been told about that, yeah, but, you know, come on. Who reads all that stuff? You know, it's not there. She, you know, she was confused, obviously, et cetera, et cetera. So not willful. So we know that. But it is interesting. I do think there's probably some bad issues here. I think first, yes, the fact that she, the fact that she took it to a jury trial, but it's her right to do so. She can ask for that, right? The second thing was, though, the IRS not realizing that it kind of looks like they're throwing a tantrum when they're going after for $21 million, way more than it would have been under their program. And I realize she ends up paying way less with $1 million than she would have paid under the program, but she wouldn't have paid $21 million either. Um, that a jury might react negatively to that, feeling that the IRS is abusing, you know, abusing their discretion. They shouldn't have come forward. Should that be a decision point? Probably not, but it could be. And juries consider that. And frankly, even uh, investigators from CID will tell you flat out on ERC fraud claims, they, they really prefer to see claims where the person took the money and went and blew it on yachts or, you know, fancy cars, fancy houses. Now, does that have anything to do with proving that their employee retention credit claim was fraudulent? Not really. They, they could still be entitled to it. Nothing required ERC money be spent in any particular way, but it'll bias the jury. So, yeah. And they'll somehow get that in front of the jury as to what they did. You know, to say, look at how awful they're ripping off the government, right? Like that. Now, the only catch is for those of us out here in practice, if you're an attorney, right, you know how to, you interpret this. This may tell you, do you want to, you know, do you want to take the case to a jury? The disadvantage of taking the case to a jury is they don't write up an opinion. Like I said, we just know what they said and their facts are, unless they're wildly off, you know, the judge, you can convince the judge, there is no way a rational person could have concluded you know, could have applied the law as you told them to these facts and come to this decision. You know, absent convincing the judge of that, um, you know, you're pretty much stuck with their decision. And that's going to be tougher to overturn. When a judge writes the opinion, you usually get a mix of the law and the facts in together. And then it'd be easier for the court to say, well, you know, the judge, while stating that, you know, properly the law should be applied like this, when the judge actually applied the law to make his decision a fact, clearly he didn't do that, right? You can read what's there. So yeah, it's a bit of a risk either way, but it is a taxpayer win. And it's there, I think, to a large extent because she went to the jury. I'm not as sure that this would have turned out as well had she gone before the judge as the trier of fact. But, you know, it, it's their choice. They can do what they wish. Next up, this is... Advanced Memorandum, a GLAM, another general legal advice memorandum, 2024-001, count on February 5th. This is an IRS ruling that covers third-party payers, where it's designated as an agent for payroll purposes by an application under IRC section 34 or 3504, yeah, 3504, 3504, regulation 3504-1, using form 2678, employer payer, appointment of agent. And what happens here is that that, that third-party payer, which may or may not be a CPEO, right, will go ahead and will file the payroll tax returns 
So usually it's an employee leasing operation, right? So they'll follow everybody under their ID number, but they'll have a lot of customers who are practical matters, the common law employer. Now, regulation 31.3504-1A provides that both the employer and the both the third-party payer and the common law employer are covered by all provisions of the employment tax law, including penalties and regulations if you enter into such an arrangement. IRC section 3511D1 provides that all payroll credits apply to the customer of a TPP, but the memo argued it did not discuss liability for repayment. So the credits apply to the customer, but does that mean that the third-party payer has no liability for repayment? And this is looking at the fact, let's say a flaky ERC claim got filed, it got paid out. Now the IRS is coming back and saying, pay us $2 million. And the employer is, you know, goes bankrupt. Can they get it back from the payroll outfit? And that, that's the question here that they're looking at. Now the IRS had provided notice to third-party payers in notice 2021-20, which did impose requirements on the payer for the credit to be claimed, which included you know, reminding them they were responsible for it. So the IRS rules, they can seek to recover any disallowed ERC credit from either the common law employer or the TPP in the view of this memorandum, right? So that's the way it would work. Uh, and as I said, now obviously they can't double recover, but it does mean they're, you know, they could pursue either one. And so that could get into a game that the TPP may not like, where the employer tries to stay uncollectible and the IRS gives up and just takes it from the payroll company. Now the payroll company has to try to chase down. Yeah, you can understand how bad that would get. It's not surprising guidance, but it's guidance that, it's not surprising in the sense the IRS already telegraphed quite a bit this was their position. Is it correct guidance? It's a whole different question, right? But the fact the IRS took this position, not, not that big a deal. Also with the ERC, this was reported by Dan Choden on the platform called X, formerly known as Twitter, remember that place? Yeah, this is new IRS notice CP271. And interestingly enough, found any evidence of it online in terms of if you search in Google, you don't get any IRS things discussing this, this notice, which often you do. Right, it was posted on February 16th of 2024. It is a two-page letter because Dan did post an image of, well, actually, it's a two-page letter plus a checklist, so really three pages. Dan posted an image of one of these letters, right? That's up there. And the checklist being sent to those who have not, who have ERC claims that have not yet been ruled upon. Okay. So this is a, hey, welcome to the program. By the way, you should consider take, getting out. Effectively, it's a letter. It warns right off that the IRS is aware of aggressive advertising of the employee retention credit and strongly suggests that the employer confirm they are eligible for the ERC amount and, you know, list those sorts of periods on the letter. So it'll say on there, these are the, all the quarters you're claiming. Please go back and independently confirm that you meet the qualifications. And we've given you this short checklist. You can kind of take a look at that and see if you might want to withdraw your claim, right? If you determine you're eligible, you're told to do nothing. However, if you determine you're not eligible, I suggested you enter into the withdrawal program that IRS still has open, but could close any time, right? 
Now, right, that so it tells you to withdraw. It also has separate instructions. What if you've determined that, hey, wait, I qualify for at least some of this. I need to amend the claims. They talk about how you would amend your claim at this point to reduce it. Now, as should be noted, if in fact Congress passes that rule, that law, and we cut off, you know, they, they pass the law that's still bouncing around the past house, where we would cut off ERC claims at January 31st, then probably you can't increase the claim. So if, if you reviewed it, you discovered, hey, guess what? The ERC mail fouled up. I'm actually owed more money. That's probably tough luck. So they only discuss reducing the claim. Now, my gut reaction is probably that's the only direction it'll be available anyway, considering how some of these operations ignored obvious things like, uh, you know, getting the PPP loan offset in there, right? Worried about capping employees at the max amount for each quarter or year for 2020 for the year, for 2021 for the quarter, right? Various things like that were a little bit. And also the no living relative rule for those who are considered majority owners of the entity, uh, not allowing them, yeah, probably going to reduce it, but I don't think you can increase. I don't think that's going to be available. And it does provide a one-page abbreviated checklist for your eligibility. Now, again, I've not seen any IRS announcement about this. Again, this was only noted again on over there on X. Uh, you know, so. Take it for whatever it is. It may be localized. It may be only some people getting it. It may be on various programs. There are just various things to do. But yes, the IRS is still sending out notices and things. So if you have a client that has applied for the program, uh, don't be surprised if they come back with one of these letters. Next up, we're going to talk about an S-Corp election that was terminated due to the failure to make the required elections by nine separate trusts. This is private letter ruling 2024-07005 on February 16th. Now, a decedent that owns shares in this S corporation dies. And the shares were apparently held in a revocable living trust, right? So at least some form of grant or trust that this person was 100% owner of. So he dies. It's also a trust was qualified for the 645 election to be treated as if it was part of the probate estate, which means vast overwhelmingly the odds are this is a traditional revocable living trust. And a revocable living trust can own S shares. And since it made the 645 election, it was being treated as if it was a probate estate. And again, a probate estate can own S shares. Right? That's automatic. However, it turns out that when the shares passed, under the terms of the of, of the trust, you know, the, the shares are to be held in here for the administration period so they can determine, you know, creditors and other things. But then, you know, because it appears the trust, I don't know if this, I don't know if it stayed around for other parts, but it's very likely it was simply there to, for administrative purposes and then sent the shares out so it didn't exist beyond the 645 period. Uh, these shares were distributed, these S-Corp shares were divided among nine separate trusts, right? So the, you know, basically the Ropo Living Trust almost certainly had a provision in it that had nine trusts set up for various heirs, and these shares were going to the nine trusts. Now, these nine trusts were designed in such a way that eight of them had powers and clearly were meant to be qualified subchapter S trusts. 
The last one, the ninth, was designed to have all the qualifications to be electing small business trusts. It's very clear that the whole estate plan intended for these trusts. So for the QSST, we would have the beneficiary make the election to allow it to be treated as a QSST. And for the ESBT, the trustee would make the election. In fact, I wouldn't be surprised if there were even terms in the trust that, you know, that would kick in if the beneficiary failed to agree the election, you know, they, they then, let's say, lose, the, lose their shares. We're not going to let them blow it up. So you want your shares, you're going to make this election or this trust will never be funded, right? You'll end up with nothing. You won't end up with any of the S shares. But in any event, none of that mattered because absolutely no elections were made. And on the basis of this, it's likely this, this went on for years before it was noticed. You know, almost certainly these trusts would qualify as trusts that, that were created by the death of the decedent. So it should have two years they could have stayed inside this trust. Then the other part is the automatic late S election rules for QSSTs specifically allow you to get automatic relief for three years after the date you should have filed. So that would say, let's assume whatever date was the cutoff, whether it was right when the, right when the assets went to these trusts, or they were treated as trusts created by the death of the decedent, and therefore we had two years to transfer them uh, additionally. So then we'd have five more years. You know, it would be either three years and 75 days after the disqual after the date they got the shares, or five years and you know, and basically and 75 days after they got the shares, the due date for the election. So this had clearly been ignored for years. And the problem with that is now the only way to solve the late election is going to be to get the IRS permission to make a late election, right? Since the trusts were not eligible as shareholders, the S status terminated. And it's a little different. You can actually have some ways to make it count if the IRS claims you never made the election, right? You never made the initial election to be S. There you can say, well, you didn't raise a question for 12 years, so therefore we can still make the late election. But since this was a terminating event, not an event where they made the initial election, now it's tougher. We don't have that option on the play to play with, right? So they applied and paid for a private letter ruling. And not surprisingly, they were granted relief. But the problem is they had to apply and pay for one. Now, those both, there is, if nothing else, a filing fee that will be imposed to get the S election reinstated. So, you know, there's a user fee. And these are not the simplest things to walk through. You've got to demonstrate to the IRS that, you know, it was not intentional. Uh, you know, somebody has to, with some expertise in this area, has to be able to walk this through. And those law firms or accounting firms are going to charge fees. So the big downside is what we don't know is who wrote the check. And it's sad because clearly somebody didn't understand the trust, didn't understand the estate plan when time came to actually transfer these shares out. They just went ahead and went along with what was happening for who knows what reason, right? But, you know, just didn't really have the background to do it. Now, that could have been a mistake on, pa on the part of counsel that were advising the trust, uh, you know, or it could be a mistake on the part of the DPA, EA, or whatever tax professional was advising the trust for not bringing this forward. 
Uh, most likely, if both were involved, uh, the trust, you know, the, the, these basically the S corporation is almost certainly seeking repayment from everybody who conceivably, so both the law firm and the accounting firm, if both were involved, could very well be called to tasks on this. But this does, this is not a rare occurrence, which is what's weird about it, right? This is not the first time we've seen the state plan that was clearly absolutely designed to be using these two qualified types of trust where when Harry dies, nobody seems to realize who's involved with administering the state at that point in time that this is supposed to be done. So a couple of things you got to call the task here. Now, is it possible they went ahead and did this, quote, on their own with no advice? If so, I can kind of understand it. This is not kind of the obvious thing to do. They may not understand. And especially if the attorney that drafted the plan, you know, didn't clearly designate what's going on or, and this I've seen as well, that attorney might have perfectly explained what's going to happen, explained it to Harry. Harry never explained to anybody else and Harry's dead now, right? So Harry wasn't around to tell people to make this election. You know, two years, you know, whatever. A couple of years after Harry died, nobody was around to say, hey, guys, you got to go make this election. Right. Or which is scarier, maybe they did have, you know, a, you know, legal advice or had, you know, or had, like I say, advice from a tax professional. And those guys simply missed the thing entirely. But clearly somebody wasn't stating, wait, this is a trust. How in the world could it hold as shares? Because that should come immediately on a death. If we're going to put these shares in a trust, how do we keep the S election around? There should be some method. And obviously, if the trusts are designed to be QSST or ESPTs, that's the way it would still be around. Finally, this week, as we close things up, long, long session this week, we're talking about Equit versus Commissioner. Tax Court Memorandum Decision 2024-23 came out on Valentine's Day again. Hey, we got a couple of these. Taxpayer pays tax on Social Security she never actually received. And as I say there, okay, there is more to the story than this. That, that, that's a headline. She's paying tax on money she never got. That's somewhat misleading, but also somewhat truthful. Let's talk about what happened to Ms. Eckert. Right? The taxpayer was a nurse. She was injured on the job in 2014, and she began receiving workers' compensation from the state of New York. Now. She also, in the following year, 2015, she applied to Social Security for Social Security Disability and was found to qualify with a letter that was issued in December 2016. Now, under New York state law, in a number of states, if you're getting workers' comp and then you qualify for Social Security Disability, then what happens is they offset, to some extent or wholly, your Social Security you know, they, they reduce your workers' comp as Social Security receiving. Now, from a tax standpoint, that's potentially a problem because Section 104 allows you to exclude from income workers' compensation payments to you. But Social Security disability is subject to the standard Social Security taxation rules where up to 85% of the Social Security may be considered subject to tax. So what we have here is this issue. Now, New York does not require that reduction. However, under Title 42 United States Code 424A, 
424 little a a how's that for a word site or social security payment would be limited based on the receipt of workers compensation based on a formula for her max benefit okay so basically because new york was not reducing it is effectively the way this works for the most part then social security was going to reduce her social security benefit right involved in this structure now, initially, Social Security found the offset reduced her benefits to zero. But after an appeal, they eventually agreed she was entitled to some cash. And, you know, so retroactive benefits back to 2014. These are finally paid in 2019. But the actual cash she received was a net of $6,120 and $1,080 in federal withholding. However, the 1099 SSA she received showed total benefits of 55,248. Of those, uh, you know, 19,866 were attributable to the year the benefits were paid, and the remainder of that was for prior years. Now, we're gonna get around, so, and IRS is gonna eventually say, okay, yeah, the prior years aren't really on this return the year before the court, and I think they've, the other years are probably closed, so somewhat irrelevant there that we could do that way. So, but they said, she may have only gotten 6180 and in reality because of withholding we'd say well really that would have been 60 that would have been their $6300 but she needs to pay tax on 85% of the 19,806 and that's because section 86d3 specifically requires an adjustment for the offset that provision provides right workers compensation your Social Security benefits subject to tax if you have workers' compensation benefits that you're receiving includes the portion of the benefit received under the Workman's Comp Act, which equals the reduction in the Social Security receiving. So even though they, they reduced their Social Security from $19,866 to $6,300, the $13,000 plus that was, you know, that basically that was a reduction well, we're just going to effectively consider that much of the workers' comp to be these Social Security payments and then take 85% of that. Now, of course, the taxpayer only reported 5202 of taxable benefits, which was 85% of the 6120, which, as I said, even if the cash received was going to be what subject to tax, it clearly should have been 6300 but let's not worry about that. The taxpayer just looks, that's all I got, so 85% of that is what I pay tax on, right? But the court noted, no, that provision A is clear. And secondly, look back to the history. And it was meant to equalize that. Let's assume that New York reduced the workers' comp benefits by the Social Security receipt. Well, it's saying, well, wait, it's unfair. You know, you know, if a state's not going to reduce workers' comp benefits when they get Social Security disability, well, then Social Security, then they don't need the disability, is the theory being, subject to this formula. They don't need some or all of that disability. So we're going to reduce it. But the problem is people that live in states where it's not reduced, where it is reduced, those people are going to be substituting workers' comp, which is not taxable, for Social Security pay higher tax. So Congress decided to equalize those treatments. It doesn't matter which one is being reduced, and one or the other will be if you have enough coming out in both. Um, they're just going to say, hey, you know, we're going to try to put you guys in the same position. So that's a reverse offset. The IRS did agree she was liable for tax on the 19A66 and benefits for reduction applied to 2019, not the earlier years. But, and the court agreed with that, said, yep, 
85% of the 19,866 should have been recorded. Therefore, the difference between that and 5202 is the adjustment to tax and they owe tax on. So as I said, is this going to come up often? Probably not. But if you do have somebody injured on the job that gets workers' comp and they are seriously injured, there's, very, there's a decent chance they'll qualify for social security disability if they're totally unable to perform any useful work going forward. And you need to remember this provision sits around. Okay, this has been the Current Federal Tax Developments for the week of February 19th. Current Federal Tax Developments, as always, is brought to you by Capital Financial Education and your State Society of CPAs. Uh, join us next week when we'll update you on federal taxes again. If you have any questions, Ed Zollers at CurrentFortaxDevelopments.com. I check in there every so often or try to, though tax season is tougher. I also monitor posts on the Connect sites for Arizona Society, Jersey Society, uh, the Illinois and um, Minnesota Society, along with looking at Washington to a limited extent, uh, and also any discussions that pop up on Idaho, I tend to take a look at, so Idaho Society CP. So if you have any questions, you know, and you're a member of one of the societies, you can post there. Uh, but as I said, for any per for any reason, we should be back next week with more current federal tax developments. So, yeah, same time, same place. Let me pick this up. Unless you have Apple Podcasts and fix the fact that, uh, you know, that, that they the most recent episode isn't showing in your Apple Podcasts app. In which case, then, you probably got this a week late. When the next update was the first time you'd see this one come in. Uh, hoping it doesn't last that long and that they fix their server-side problem quickly. But just in case you get this late, there's your reason why you got it late. So we'll talk to you later, and uh, we'll see you next week for more current federal tax developments.